Section 24 of The Plain Speaker. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mark Michelson. The Plain Speaker. Opinions on Books, Men, and Things. By William Hazlitt. Section 24. On the Qualifications Necessary to Success in Life. Part 2. There is nothing that floats a man sooner into the tide of reputation, or oftener passes current for genius, than what might be called constitutional talent. A man without this, whatever may be his worth or real powers, will no more get on in the world than a leaden mercury will fly into the air. As any pretender with it, and with no one quality beside to recommend him, will be sure either to blunder upon success or will set failure at defiance. By constitutional talent I mean, in general, the warmth and vigor given to a man's ideas and pursuits by his bodily stamina, by mere physical organization. A weak mind in a sound body is better, or at least more profitable, than a sound mind in a weak and crazy confirmation. How many instances might I quote? Let a man have a quick circulation, a good digestion, the bulk and thews and sinews of a man, and the alacrity, the unthinking confidence inspired by these, and without an atom, a shadow of the mens devenoir, he shall strut and swagger and vapor and jostle his way through life, and have the upper hand of those who are his betters in everything but health and strength. His jest shall be echoed with loud laughter, because his own lungs begin to crow like Chanticleer, before he has uttered them, while a little hectic nervous humorist shall stammer out an admirable conceit that is damned in the doubtful delivery, vox facit. the first shall test a story as long as his arm, without interruption, while the latter stops short in his attempts from mere weakness of chest. The one shall be empty and noisy and successful in argument, putting forth the most commonplace things, with a confident brow and throng of words that come with more than impudent sauciness from him, while the latter shrinks from an observation too deep for his hearers, into the delicacy and unnoticed retirement of his own mind. The one shall never feel the want of intellectual resources, because he can back his opinions with his person. The other shall lose the advantages of mental superiority, seek to anticipate contempt by giving offence, court mortification and despair of popularity, and even in the midst of public and private admiration, extorted slowly by incontrovertible proofs of genius, shall never get rid of the awkward, uneasy sense of personal weakness and insignificance, contracted by early and long-continued habit. What imports the inward to the outward man, when it is the last that is general and inevitable but of ridicule or object of admiration. It has been said that a good face is a letter of recommendation, but the finest face will not carry a man far, unless it is set upon an active body, and a stout pair of shoulders. The countenance is the index of a man's talents and attainments. His figure is the criterion of his progress through life. We may have seen faces that spoke, a soul as fair, bright as the children of yon azur sheen, 
yet that met with but an indifferent reception in the world, and that being supported by a couple of spindle shanks and a weak stomach, in fulfilling what was expected of them, fell flat and shamed their worshippers. Hence the successes of such persons did not correspond with their deserts. There was a natural contradiction between the physiognomy of their minds and bodies. The phrase, a good-looking man, means different things in town and country, and artists have a separate standard of beauty from other people. A country squire is thought good-looking, who is in good condition like his horse. A country farmer, to take the neighbor's eyes, must seem stall-fed, like the prize ox. They ask, how he cuts up in the call, how he tallows in the kidneys. The letter of recommendation face, in general, is not one that expresses the finer movements of thought or of the soul, but that makes part of a vigorous and healthy form. It is one in which Cupid and Mars take up their quarters, rather than Saturn or Mercury. It may be objected here that some of the greatest favorites of fortune have been little men. A little man, but of high fancy, is Stern's description of Mr. Hammond Shandy. But then they have been possessed of strong fibers and an iron constitution. The late Mr. West said that Bonaparte was the best-made man he ever saw in his life. In other cases, the gauntlet of contempt, which a puny body and a fiery spirit are forced to run, may determine the possessors to aim at great actions. Indignation may make men heroes as well as poets, and thus revenge them on the niggardliness of nature and the prejudices of the world. I remember Mr. Wordsworth saying that he thought ingenious poets had been of small and delicate frames, like Pope, but that the greatest, such as Shakespeare and Milton, had been healthy, and cast in a larger and handsomer mould. So were Titian, Raphael, and Michelangelo. This is one of the few observations of Mr. Wordsworth's I recollect worth quoting, and I accordingly set it down as his, because I understand he is tenacious on that point. In love, in war, in conversation, in business, confidence and resolution are the principal things. Hence the poet's reasoning. For women, born to be controlled, affect the loud, the vain, the bold. Nor is this peculiar to them, but runs all through life. It is the opinion we appear to entertain of ourselves, from which, thinking we must be the best judges of our own merits, Others accept their idea of us on trust. It is taken for granted that every one pretends to the utmost he can do, and he who pretends to little is supposed capable of nothing. The humility of our approaches to power or beauty ensures a repulse, and repulse makes us unwilling to renew the application, for there is pride as well as humility in this habitual backwardness and reserve. If you do not bully the world, they will be sure to insult over you, because they think that they can do it with impunity. They insist upon the arrogant assumption of superiority somewhere, and if you do not prevent them, they will practice it on you. Someone must top the part of captain in the play. Servility, however, chimes in and plays scrub in the farce. Men patronize the fawning and obsequious, as they submit to the vain and boastful. It is the air of modesty and independence, which will neither be put upon itself, nor put upon others, that they cannot endure, that excites all the indignation that they should feel 
for pompous affectation, and all the contempt they do not show to meanness and duplicity. Our indolence and perhaps our envy take part with our cowardice and vanity in all this. The obtrusive claims of empty ostentation played off like the ring on the finger, fluttering and sparkling in our sight, relieve us from the irksome task of seeking out obscure merit. The scroll of virtues written on the bold front, or triumphing in the laughing eye, save us the trouble of sifting the evidence and deciding for ourselves. Besides, our self-love receives a less sensible shock from encountering the mere semblance than the solid substance of worth. Folly chuckles to find the blockhead put over the wise man's head, and cunning winks to see the knave, by his own good leave, transformed into a saint. Doubtless the pleasure is as great in being cheated as to cheat. In all cases there seems a sort of compromise, a principle of collusion between impostor and credulity. If you ask what sort of adventurers have swindled tradesmen of their goods, you will find they are all likely men, with plausible manners or a handsome equipage, hired on purpose. If you ask what sort of gallants have robbed women of their hearts, you will find they are those who have jilted hundreds before, from which the willing fair conceives the project of fixing the truant to herself. So the bird flutters its idle wings in the jaws of destruction, and the foolish moth rushes into the flame that consumes it. There is no trusting to appearances, we are told, but this maxim is of no avail, for men are the eager dupes of them. Life, it has been said, is the art of being well deceived, and accordingly hypocrisy seems to be the great business of mankind. The game of fortune is, for the most part, set up with counters, so that he who will not cut in because he has no gold in his pocket must sit out above half his time and lose his chance of sweeping the tables. Delicacy is, in ninety-nine cases out of a hundred, considered as rusticity, and sincerity of purpose is the greatest affront that can be offered to society. To insist on simple truth is to disqualify yourself for place or patronage. The less you deserve, the more merit in their encouraging you. And he who, in the struggle for distinction, trust to realities and not to appearances, will in the end find himself the object of universal hatred and scorn. A man who thinks to gain and keep the public ear by the force of style will find it very uphill work. If you wish to pass for a great author, you ought not look as if you were ignorant that you had ever written a sentence or discovered a single truth. If you keep your own secret, be assured the world will keep it for you. A writer whom I know very well, footnote one, himself, ed, and a footnote, cannot gain an admission to Drury Lane Theatre, because he does not lounge into the lobbies, or sup at the Shakespeare. Nay, the same person having written upwards of sixty columns of original matter on politics, criticism, Bell's letters, and virtue in a respectable morning paper, footnote two, the Morning Chronicle, E.D., and a footnote, in a single half-year was at the end of the period on applying for a renewal of his engagement, told by the editor, he might give in a specimen of what he could do. One would think sixty columns of the Morning Chronicle 
were a sufficient specimen of what a man could do. But while this person was thinking of his next answer to Vetus, footnote one, this series of papers will be found reprinted in Political Essays, 1819, E.D., end of footnote, or his account of Mr. Keene's performance in Hamlet, he had neglected to point the toe, to hold up his head higher than usual, having acquired a habit of poring over books when young, and to get a new velvet collar to an old-fashioned great coat. These are the graceful ornaments to the columns of a newspaper, the Corinthian capitals of a polished style. This unprofitable servant of the press found no difference in himself before or after he became known to the readers of the Morning Chronicle, and it accordingly made no difference in his appearance or pretensions. Don't you remember, says Gray in one of his letters, Lord C. and Lord M., who are now great statesmen, little dirty boys playing at cricket? For my own part, I don't feel myself a bit taller or older or wiser than I did then. It is no wonder that a poet, who thought in this manner of himself, was hunted from college to college, has left us so few precious specimens of his fine powers, and shrunk from his reputation into a silent grave. I never knew a man of genius, a coxcomb in dress, said a man of genius and sloven in dress. I do know a man of genius, who is a coxcomb in his dress, and in everything else, but let that pass. C'est un mauvais métier que c'est lui de me dire. I also know an artist who has at least the ambition and the boldness of genius, who has been reproached with being a coxcomb, and with affecting singularity in his dress and demeanor. If he is a coxcomb that way, he is not so in himself, but a rattling, hair-brained fellow, with a great deal of unconstrained gaiety, and impetuous, not to say turbulent, life of mind. Happy it is when a man's exuberance of self-love flies off to the circumference of a broad-brimmed hat, descends to the toes of his shoes, or carries itself off with the peculiarity of his gait, or even vents itself in a little professional quackery, and when he seems to think sometimes of you, sometimes of himself, and sometimes of others, and you do not feel it necessary to pay to him all the finical devotion, or to submit to be treated with the scornful neglect of a proud beauty, or some prince pretty man, it is well to be something besides the coxcomb, for our own sake as well as that of others, but to be born wholly without the faculty or gift of providence. A man had better have had a stone tied around his neck, and been cast into the sea. In general, the consciousness of internal power leads rather to a disregard of, than a studied attention to the external appearance. The wear and tear of the mind does not improve the sleekness of the skin, or the elasticity of the muscles. The burther of thought weighs down the body like a porter's burthen. A man cannot stand so upright, or move so briskly under it, as if he had nothing to carry in his head or on his shoulders. The rose on the cheek and the canker at the heart do not flourish at the same time, and he who has much to think of must take many things to heart, for thought and feeling are one. He who can truly say, Nihil humani e mi alienum puto, has a world of cares on his hands, which nobody knows anything of but himself. This is not one of the least miseries of a studious life. The common herd do not by any means give him full credit 
or his gratuitous sympathy with their concerns, but are struck with his lack-luster eye and wasted appearance. They cannot translate the expression of his countenance out of the Vulgate. They mistake the knitting of his brows for the frown of displeasure, the paleness of study for the languor of sickness, the furrows of thought for the regular approaches of old age. They read his looks, not his books, have no clue to penetrate the last recesses of the mind, and attribute the height of abstraction to more than the ordinary share of stupidity. Mr. Hazlitt never seems to take the slightest interest in anything, is a remark I have often heard made in a whisper. People do not like your philosopher at all, for he does not look, say, or think as they do, and they respect him still less. The majority go by personal appearances, not by proofs of intellectual power, and they are quite right in this, for they are better judges of the one than of the other. There is a large party who undervalue Mr. Keene's acting, and very properly, as far as they are concerned, for they can see that he is a little ill-made man, but they are incapable of entering into the depth and height of the passion in his Othello. A nobleman of high rank, sense, and merit, who had accepted an order of knighthood, on being challenged for so doing by a friend, as a thing rather degrading to him than otherwise, made answer, What you say may be very true, but I am a little man, and am sometimes jostled, and treated with very little ceremony in walking along the streets. Now the advantage of this new honor will be, that when people see the star at my breast, they will every one make way for me with the greatest respect. Pope bent himself double and ruined his constitution by overstudy when young. He was hardly indemnified by all his posthumous fame, the flattery that soothes the dull cold ear of death, nor by the admiration of his friends, nor the friendship of the great, for the distortion of his person, the want of robust health, and the insignificant figure he made in the eyes of strangers, and of Lady Mary Wortley Montague. Not only was his diminutive and misshapen form against him in such trivial toys, but it was made a set-off and a bar to his poetic pretensions by his brother poets, who ingeniously converted the initials and final letters of his name into the invidious appellation A. Period, P. Period, e. Period. He probably had the passage made underground from his garden to his grotto, that he might not be rudely gazed at in crossing the road by some untutored clown, and perhaps started to see the worm he trod upon writhed into his own form, like Elsheet the Black Dwarf. Let those who think the mind everything, and the body nothing, ere we shuffle off this mortal coil, read that fine moral fiction of the real story of David Ritchie, Believe and Tremble. Footnote. Here it is more desirable to be the handsomest than the wisest man in His Majesty's dominions, for there are more people who have eyes than understandings. Sir John Suckling tells us that he prized black eyes and a lucky hit at bowls above all the trophies of wit. In like manner, I would be permitted to say that I am somewhat sick of this trade of authorship, where the critics look askance at one's best-meant efforts, but am still fond of those athletic exercises, where they do not keep two scores to mark the game, with wig and tory notches. The accomplishments of the body are obvious and clear to all. Those of the mind are recondite and doubtful, 
and therefore grudgingly acknowledged, or held up as the sport of prejudice, spite, and folly. End of footnote. It may be urged that there is a remedy for all of this in the appeal from the ignorant many to the enlightened few. But the few who are judges of what is called real and solid merit are not forward to communicate their occult discoveries to others. They are withheld, partly by envy, and partly by pusillanimity. The strongest minds are by rights the most independent and ingenious, but then they are competitors in the list, and jealous of the prize. The prudent, and the wise are prudent, only add their hearty applause to the acclamations of the multitude, which they can neither silence nor dispute. So Mr. Gifford dedicated those verses to Mr. Hopner, when securely seated on the heights of fame and fortune, which before he thought might have savored too much of flattery or friendship, those even who have the sagacity to discover it, seldom volunteer to introduce obscure merit into publicity, so as to endanger their own pretensions. They praise the world's idols, and bow down at the altars which they cannot overturn by violence or undermine by stealth. Suppose literary men to be the judges and vouchers for literary merit. But it may sometimes happen that a literary man, however high in genius or in fame, has no passion but the love of distinction, and hates every person or thing that interferes with his inadmissible and exorbitant claims. Dead to every other interest, he is alive to that, and starts up like a serpent when trod upon, out of the slumber of the wounded pride. The cold slime of indifference is turned into a rank poison at the sight of your approach to an equality or competition within himself. If he is an old acquaintance, he would keep you always where you were, under his feet to be trampled on. If a new one, he wonders he never heard of you before. As you become known, he expresses a greater contempt for you, and grows more captious and uneasy. The more you strive to merit his good word, the farther you are from it. Such characters will not only sneer at your well-meant endeavors, and keep silent as to your good qualities, but are out of countenance, quite chop-fallen, if they find you have a cup of water or a crust of bread. It is only when you are in jail, starved or dead, that their exclusive pretensions are safe, or their argus-eyed suspicions laid asleep. This is a true copy, nor is it taken from one sitting or a single subject. An author nowadays, to succeed, must be something more than an author, a nobleman, or rich plebeian. The simple literary character is not enough. Such a poor forked animal, as a mere poet or philosopher turned loose upon public opinion, has no chance against the flocks of bats and owls that instantly assail him. It is name, it is wealth, it is title and influence that mollifies the tender-hearted Serbius of criticism. First, by placing the honorary candidate for fame out of the reach of Grub Street malice. Secondly, by holding out the prospect of a dinner or a vacant office to successful sycophancy. This is the reason why a certain magazine praises Percy by Shelley and vilifies Johnny Keats. Footnote. Written in June, 1820. End of footnote. They know very well that they cannot ruin the one in fortune as well as in fame. But they may ruin the other in both deprive him of a livelihood together with his good name, send him to Coventry, and into the rules of a prison, 
and this is a double incitement to the exercises of their laudable and legitimate vocation. We do not hear that they plead the good-natured motive of the editor of the Quarterly Review, that they did it for his good, because someone, in consequence of that critic's abuse, had sent the author a present of five and twenty pounds. One of those writers went so far, in a sort of general profession of literary servility, as to declare broadly that there had been no great English poet, and that no one had a right to pretend to the character of a man of genius in this country, who was not of patrician birth, or connections by marriage. This hook was well baited. These are the doctrines that enrich the shops, that pass with reputation through the land, and bring their authors an immortal name. It is the sympathy of the public with the spite, jealousy, and irritable humors of the writers that nourishes this disease in the public mind. This, this embalms and spices to the April day again, what otherwise the spittle and lazar house would heave the gorge at. End of section 24